Hosting for With the First Link on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network is brought to you by Fansets, creators of cool pins and memorabilia from your favorite franchises. Visit fansets.com and use code TREKGEEKS, all capital letters, for your exclusive 10% discount. Welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist, pro-bodily autonomy lens. I'm Ruthie Cowper samoshi And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about the Dauphin. This episode was written by Scott Rubenstein and Leonard Mlodino and directed by Rob Bowman. It first aired on February the 18th, 1989. For today's check-in, we just want to briefly touch base on something that was pretty prevalent in our last episode, which is bodily autonomy, the right to specifically have an abortion, uh, but that connects to so many other rights of yeah, bodily autonomy and just being able to make choices for yourself. It's a scary time. It is a scary time. So the, uh, the day that we are recording this is just a few days after the U.S. Supreme Court has just released their decision effectively overturning Roe versus Wade. It's really upsetting. And we talked about it a lot in our last episode because it really connected to that episode. And we were recording that one just after the draft of the uh, decision was leaked. Now it's real, and it was upsetting then, and it's even more upsetting now. My body is not personally affected by this decision for two reasons. One, I'm a man, and secondly, I live in Canada. However, there are leaks, not leaks, I think, but there are feelers that have been put out by the Conservative Party in our own country to go this direction. Yeah. But secondly, I'm also really scared by the fact that, like, as someone who used to belong to the religious right community, uh, it seems pretty clear now that the religious right has every intention to try to sway the entire country. Anybody who had sort of decision-making power chose to ignore those warnings. And that's also really upsetting. We're not going to talk too much more about it, partly because it is really upsetting. And it's a little, like for me at least, it's quite quite raw. And also because there are a lot of other people out there who know and can say a lot more about it than we can. But we do want to acknowledge it and maybe encourage folks to donate money to a local abortion fund or to existing grassroots networks that are supporting people with access to reproductive care. It didn't start here and it's not going to end here. This is one step in a very scary pathway towards control over women, cis women, trans women, trans men, non-binary folks, any person who 
does not fit the sort of prescribed roles that are set out for their gender, for the white supremacist patriarchy agenda. So not not really connected to the episode we're talking about today, although there are always there are always connections. So some I'm sure will come up as we discuss this one. It's Pride Weekend. It is Pride Weekend. Yeah. There's some stuff in that we were talking about earlier that touches uh, with that around identity. And so we'll get into that later on in the episode too. For sure. Do we want to just jump into things? Let's jump in. What happens in this episode? Okay. Matt? In this episode, the Enterprise escorts a young future leader to Dalit 4 and she and Wesley fall in love. They do. Here's a fun fact. Oh, fun facts. A fun fact about Dalit 4. Okay. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but Dalit is the fourth letter, or maybe it's Dalid. I think it's Dalid. Anyway, fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then, so it's kind of the equivalent of our letter D. It also sometimes is used to represent the number four. Like there is a different word for the number four, but it sometimes D is also used to represent like the fourth thing in a in a series. So so Dalid is, is sometimes used that way. So it's just kind of funny that the planet is Dalid four. So it's like four, four. Or D4. It's 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. D4. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. The ship arrives at Clavdia 3. Did you know that that is the word for three <laughs> in ancient Mesopotamia? <laughs> is that a mat fact? It might be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the ship arrives at Clavdia 3 as they sort of arrive and, and come out of warp. LaForge says that he wants to use this time that they're out of warp to make some adjustments on the deuterium control conduit which will take a couple of hours. And then this is not really that important to the story, except that LaForge tells Wesley that he needs an SCM Model 3 from ship stores and sends Wesley away to get that. We'll see what happens with that very soon. Back on the bridge, Picard is commenting that Clavdia 3 is not very inviting. It has like this awful, toxic atmosphere. And they kind of zoom in on the planet's atmosphere and it looks like it's all like churning yellow haze and fog. Yeah. And green. Yeah. And so we get some exposition from Troy that they're picking up the future leader of Dalid 4. Troy also kind of comments that it's a bit of a weird place for this future leader to have been there for the last 16 years. And Worf comments that to some, security is more important than comfort. And that's... <laughs> That's going to be quite a theme in this episode. They are hailed at from the surface. There's like a staticky transmission distorted by the planet's atmosphere. They ask if they've come for for Salia of Dalid 4 or Dalid 4 and then asks what species they are. And Picard says human, which, you know, is not the only species on the ship, yeah. but okay. Yeah. And they're like, okay, very well. It's a really weird moment. And then you find out later why they did that. But it, it really, I was like, what? It, what species are you? Okay, human, human works for us. So Riker comments that Anya isn't very friendly. Anya was the one who hailed them. Picard, again, a little more exposition that Celia has the rank of head of state, that she and Anya will be treated like in accordance with that rank. All for the benefit of the audience, because most likely everyone knows what mission they are. Chances are, like, chances are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Riker's like, why are we here? Yeah. So Picard and Riker and Worf all go to greet Celia and Anya in the transporter room. And I'm just going to, I do enjoy commenting on the wardrobe, but this one I think is actually a little bit relevant to yes, the plot. Yes, of course. Uh, Celia is young and she wears a brown one-piece 
I don't know, jumpsuit, I guess you call it. And Anya Mm -hmm. is older. I think she's supposed to be like an old woman. So she's like Hollywood old. And she wears like all gray. And when they arrive up there, Salia's really excited about the transporter. Like she's like, oh, can I look at the controls? So cool. And I didn't feel anything when I was transported. So like clearly this is the first time she's used a transporter, or at least that she remembers. Riker offers a tour of the ship. And Salia is again really excited about that. But Anya's like, nope, we just... We just need to be seen to our quarters. Thank you very much. So on the way to the quarters, they pass by Wesley getting the SCM module. And Celia stops and is like, oh, is that a superconducting magnet? And Wesley's like, you're a girl. You can't know about technology. <laughs> so this is surprising. It is surprising. I, okay, I do want to say in, I mean, that is such a common trope of like, wow, you're so smart. You know something and you're a girl. But I also think... That from what we see of Celia, she is nerdy in the same way that Wesley is nerdy. Oh yeah, she, they're like they're a good match. They are. So I do think it is a it, it's not as bad as it could be of like the wow a girl who actually knows something, but like it's yeah. like someone's nerdy in the same way as me. Finally, <laughs> she tries to make conversation with Wesley because she wants to know about the superconducting magnet, and Anya cuts them off, and Celia cheerfully comments, "She's like, watch out." Those magnets can rip the iron right out of your blood cells. And honestly, if someone was trying to flirt with me, that would be pretty awesome. That is true. She's got this huge (laughs) smile on her face while she says that. Can I actually just say something about myself and Celia? Oh, yeah, please. Go ahead. This is not one of the episodes that I return to a lot. I don't know if how that is for you, Matthew, but this is not. So I hadn't seen this one in quite a while. But when I saw Celia, I was just struck with this like memory of thinking that she was so beautiful as a child. I always say that my first crush, like my first celebrity crush was Will Wheaton, which is true. Mm -hmm. But I think also like I didn't know it, but there are a lot of really, really beautiful women on Star Trek. And I think those were also in my celebrity crushes. I just didn't know it at the time. Um, But this was a definite like, oh man, early signs that I was queer right here. Right, right here, <laughs> looking at Celia. Okay, yeah, for sure. I had a big crush on her when I was a little kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's very beautiful. She is. Yeah, so so she walks away, or she's she's sort of led away by Anya, and Riker kind of hangs back. Right, if you're going to talk to someone about your crushes for someone on the ship, you can talk to Riker. Yeah, definitely the best person. Oh, yeah, so Wesley's <laughs> like, who was that? Riker's like, well... She, he makes a joke at first about Anya, of course. And she's, he's like, no, no, no. The girl. The girl. It's like, well, that she's destined to rule an entire world. And if you, if you, <laughs> if you want to wave someone off of somebody else, <laughs> you probably wouldn't say that. Yeah, he's kind of trying to do it as like, she doesn't have time for you. But it probably comes across yeah. as like, she is amazing. She's going to rule a whole. She's a queen, basically. And he's like, wow. Yeah. And then we go into the intro. Yeah, we go into the intro. This is one of those episodes that actually talks about what the episode is yeah. before the intro. Yeah, that's kind of nice. <laughs> and then we we come back and we're in Wesley's quarters and he's just kind of like fixing his hair in, in a mirror and sort of like preening a little bit. And Data enters. Apparently Wesley had called for, for Data. Don't know why Data specifically, but he wants to know about right. Celia. Data says for both Wesley's benefit and the audience's benefit that she was born on Dalit 4, and her parents were from opposite sides in a centuries-long civil war, and they both died shortly after she was born. Right. A Federation ship brought her and Anya to Clavdia 3 
so that she would be raised in a neutral environment and then come back and rule this world and bring peace. I don't know that that is actually like a realistic plan. You know what? Actually, as I was watching this, I was wondering what would Riva have to say about that? Maybe that's what they need. They need Riva. He's beside that rock table, still waiting for people to show up. <laughs> He's still at that table, just waiting, trying to get them to listen to each other, yeah. teach them sign language. He's like, he's like yeah. chewing on lichen. Yeah. He's like, mm. So LaForge, LaForge calls to Wesley and is like, Wesley, where's my magnet? <laughs> Wesley just 100% never came. didn't go. He just like talked to Celia and then went to his quarters. He's like, I don't need a magnet. <laughs> I feel a different kind of attraction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then back on the bridge... They are on their way to Dalit 4, but they're using impulse power because LaForge is making these adjustments. They're kind of talking about like, oh, do you think our guests are are satisfied with, with their quarters? And Worf is like, oh, I doubt Anya is satisfied with anything. Yeah, I doubt that woman is satisfied with yeah, anything. Yeah, just fair. I wonder if writers in Star Trek had a lot of issues with like mother-in-laws. Because that yeah. like, seems to be another thing here. Like it, it's like another mother-in-law trope. We see it with Waxana. We see it here with yeah. Anya. It's like... We can't get along with the mom. We can't, yeah. And and there's also, but I mean, to be to be fair to Worf in the moment, like nothing is up to Anya's specifications. I mean, this is kind of like what we were talking about last time with Captain Lavoie, the way that like women in power are written, that there, yes, there yeah. isn't the same collegiality that men in power are sometimes written. Yeah, they're all like bro-ish, bro-y. Yeah. Troy comments that she's a little worried about these guests. She says that their emotions do not fit who they are and what they are doing. And she clarifies that it's not that they aren't who they say they are. Like they're not imposters, but it's more that they are not what they say they are. This is a thing that I find early TNG does that they'll drop something like that and no one asks any follow-up questions just to maintain the suspense, <laughs> but like in kind of like really artificial way. Obviously, the captain's next question would be like, what do you mean by that? But they never go in. You're like, okay, whatever. You just kind of leave that hanging and you're like, oh, all right, fine. It's mysterious. Yeah, I feel like like Troy might be sensing that, but... Yeah, she to communicate what she means. Well, the way she said it is is ambiguous. It's very up for interpretation. But yeah, Picard is just like, okay, that's weird. Let's keep an eye on that. But feel feel no need to clarify what you just said. They're shapeshifters. What? I mean, what he does do is he calls to Celia in in their room and does yep. ask for visual, which is perhaps a bit of a follow up. Celia says that the quarters are good and asks, but he's she's like, who's that young man that we saw before? So now, of course, the whole bridge crew knows that there's something going on between them. <laughs> Way to be subtle. I mean, Celia has no experience with this. So she's just like totally Fair open and, and honest about it. And honest, yeah, like I want to know yeah. who's that Who guy? Who's that hot dude that we passed by in the hallway? Nerdy guy with the superconducting magnet. I want to know. Anya approaches Celia while Picard answers. And Celia cuts a conversation off. And then Anya like walks away looking upset. And Troy says, of course, that she still senses like what she said before. That something, something else is going yeah. on. Yeah. And then Data comments that it's, and I guess this is, they just like shift, they shift gears. Like Troy says that thing and, and it could be investigated more. But instead, Data is like, well, my question is, how is she supposed to bring peace? It's interesting. Like there's a little bit of a funny moment where they're talking about what caused the conflict on Dalad 4. Data says it's the difference between night and day. And so Riker at first mistakes that for a colloquialism, but he's literally talking about the planet being like tidally locked so it's in its rotation 
it always has one side facing the sun and one side facing away from the sun. There's like a, a side that's always in day and a side that's always in night. They said they probably result in cultural differences. And I was trying to figure out what they would be. Like one side is like, ah, we don't like you. You live in the dark. It's very possible that the majority of terrestrial type planets in the galaxy are like this because the vast majority of stars in the galaxy are red dwarf stars. And in order to be in the habitable zone of a red dwarf star, likely those planets are tidally locked to the star because they orbit so closely. So this is probably, you know, to get nerdy for a second about astronomy, that's yeah. that's very likely that many planets are like this in space. Or I read somewhere that that is also something that can happen. And maybe this is connected to them being uh, with red dwarf stars, but that is something that sort of happens to planets over time. So like eventually their revolution and rotation cycles kind of sync up. It depends on how close they are to the the other gravity source. So okay. Mercury, for example, is pretty close to our sun. And its rotation, like its annual rotation and its daily rotation are almost synchronized. Right. Now. But that won't happen to the farther planets. But our moon is like that. With us. Earth, right? Yeah. The, yeah. So the, or the Earth is right. tied and the Earth and the moon. But at one point in the past, the moon did used to rotate. But now it, it doesn't. It's helpful to have a space expert on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I could see that sort of, you know, we, we do see like, for example, even like in parts of this country where there are very different, I mean, you talked about this before when, oh, I don't, can't remember which episode, but we were talking about like colonizing other planets and you were saying that the way people evolved is very close to the way the planet and the land evolved. And so I could see if you have such different experiences of the planet you might also have different cultures that could cause conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Then Riker makes like a super weird comment that Celia seems too delicate to bring peace. I mean, I might say she seems a little young to have that kind of responsibility, but too delicate just strikes me as a sexist thing to say. Yeah, it's like only, yeah, peace can only come through more force and violence. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, what macho. is that supposed to mean exactly? Ugh. Yeah, it's just one of those throwaway lines that's kind of in there, yeah. which seems kind of odd. And then, and then is, is this the, the line that you were talking about with Worf, that he says, like, not to be fooled by looks because the body is just a shell? The body is just a shell. And of course, no one asks what he means. There is a certain amount of foreshadowing there because he doesn't know that they're shapeshifters and he can't sense that. But it's actually, I, I thought it was an interesting thing for Worf to say because you, you might expect him to take that stance of, like, oh, this person's too delicate, but he doesn't. He's like, no, it's not about just the body. It's about your inner strength. So he's sensing that there is some strength there. And maybe he doesn't know exactly what it is, but he senses something. We're in Celia's quarters now and Celia talks to, all of a sudden there's just this young woman in her quarters. <laughs> We're like, who is this person? We don't know. A young woman we've never seen before, but she is wearing gray. She's also wearing gray. Celia is asking, like, how can I be leader if I don't know anything about my own people? Because, of course, she's grown up in isolation from her own planet. A very good point, I think. I was also trying to figure out, like, why is she this form now? It really did strike me that Celia was very isolated. Anya was, like, her only companion. So maybe she sometimes takes a different shape depending on what Celia or what she thinks Celia needs in that moment. In that moment, yeah, that might be more the case, yeah. That was my interpretation. Although we don't, later on, we we, real, we find out that their true form is very different. So I don't know if they, would they just sometimes take the forms of different species? Like sometimes they'd be humanoid, sometimes they'd be 
Sometimes not. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, if that was a form that she had normally taken in the past when they have these kinds of conversations, it makes sense. But there was no evidence that they ever took human form before at all. So it looks like Celia may not want to be leader. Like, it, obviously, she's kind of overwhelmed by this. Yeah. But she says that she doesn't really have a choice. And the other woman that's there says that, like, she's the last and only chance that they have for peace. And then shapeshifts into this, like... An Ewok. Grayish... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, basically, like, but more terrifying. Yeah, an evil Ewok. An evil dark side Ewok. It's kind of like, it's not jarring to me because I've seen the episode before. Yeah. But if you're just kind of watching it for the first time, you might be like, whoa, like, what, what just happened here? What is happening? In engineering, LaForge is still working on those adjustments. And Wesley's taking, like, a really long time to do his part of the job. And he, like drops his equipment and it's just this is unusual for Wesley and he tells LaForge that he's distracted by Celia which is very open of him to say that's that's kind of kind of nice and then he's like okay I'll do better and then immediately sets off an alarm yeah LaForge comments that Wesley's going through puberty I think he already went through puberty because he's like 17 but it is that is basically what LaForge says he's like oh your glands are erupting and hormones and you know he mentions like oh you're useless right now and and so LaForge basically sends him away because he says that you're like distracted the kind of advice that all of the people he talks to are giving him is not like necessarily helpful advice for a young person no, he asks the wrong like, people. I feel like, like Forge, given our relationship uh, experience with Forge yeah. and Worf, who comes Worf, up next. Worf and then Riker. I mean, I feel like the kinds of things you need to say to someone are like, you know, be yourself, be kind, listen to to what she's saying, not like open with a line like you are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the whole universe. And anyway. It's, well, we'll get, we'll get to we'll that get part. To... First, we get to Worf screaming in Wesley's screaming. face. He's like, ah, that is how a Klingon lures a mate. And he's like, you yell at them? And he's like, no, women roar, then hurl heavy objects and claw at you. And he's like, all like smiling. So that's not helpful, though, because what, what's, what's Wesley supposed to do? Go to her and be like, okay, scream at me, and I'm going to stand and read love poetry while you yell and throw heavy objects at me. We know that she could shapeshift into a Klingon. She could, that's true. I don't know if Wesley may not be into that. Yeah. The data says that he's like, well... He's like, you two are probably biologically compatible. He's like, there could be a difference in histocompatibility sequence of the cell membrane. And then Wesley's like, <laughs> Data, I want to meet her, not dissect her. Yeah. Which I thought was a great line. Yeah. So he he leaves the bridge as as Picard enters and again calls Celia and asks for visual. And then like Celia kind of rushes the the Ewok or the the te nightmare teddy bear out of the way before turning on the viewer. Picard says that Anya is going to take a tour of the ship, even though she previously said that wouldn't be necessary, but she is going to take a tour of the ship and invites Celia. And Celia says yes, but then when she turns off the viewer, the teddy bear is like shaking its head emphatically and then turns back into Anya. So if, if you haven't realized it, by now, this shapeshifter is Anya. And even though they have like a dun 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 in the music, yeah. if you, yeah. in case you hadn't noticed, who could this yet. be? Wait, but Anya tells Celia that she has to remain in the quarters where she is safe and says, Do an old woman a favor and obey me for the rest of the trip. And then Celia says that Anya is no more an old woman than, than Celia is a leader. So basically saying, like, you're not an old woman. This is just a form that you're taking. So 
that's part of the, they're not what, they, they are who they are, but not what they say they are. Worf arrives and Anya tells him that Celia will remain behind and then tells Celia that Celia is a leader. And Anya, she's like, I'm older than you could ever imagine. And then leaves. Yeah. So then we go to 10 forward and Wesley asks Riker what he should say. I love this scene. I remember this episode primarily from this and the whole episode is worth watching from this Just one for this scene. Well, I mean, watching Riker and Guinan flirt with each other, I feel like at least part of it is real. I do think that Riker have a bit of a thing for Guinan based on this scene alone. Oh, you think this is based in reality? Just a little right, bit. Right. I feel like Riker is drawing in on his own experiences and he's like, I'm not going to pursue it, but I wouldn't say no. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So he starts off with, you are the most beautiful woman in the galaxy. Basically, he's, sorry, just to set this up, he wants to show Wesley this is how you should approach Celia. And he asks Guinan for help. And so the three of them are kind of at a table mm -hmm. together. And so he opens with, you are the most beautiful woman in the galaxy. And Guinan like looks at him kind of skeptical. But then she's like, no, no, that, that works. Keep going. Keep going. You don't know how long I've wanted to tell you that. But you're afraid. Yes. Of me. Of us, of what we might become. Commander? Or that you might think that was a lie. Maybe I do think it's a lie. And you think I'm not sincere? I didn't say that. There's nothing wrong with the line. It's like a knock at the door. Then you're inviting me in. I'm not sending you away. That's more than I expected. Is it as much as you hoped? To hope is to recognize the possibility. I had only dreams. <sighs> dreams can be dangerous. Not these dreams. I dream of a galaxy where your eyes are the stars and the universe worships the night. Careful. Putting me on a pedestal so high you may not be able to reach me. Then I'll learn how to fly. You are the heart in my day and the soul in my night. I don't think this is my style. Shut up, kid. Keep talking. Yeah, this is us now. In engineering, Worf and Anya enter, and Anya wants to know what LaForge is doing, because he can see LaForge is making the adjustments that Wesley didn't do. And he's like, Oh yeah, I gotta I gotta fix like the you know deuterium flow or whatever. And Anya knows exactly what he is that he's working on. And then she's like, well, I could create these other like anions that might float around the ship. And he's like, well, the computer would detect that. And she's like, unless your computer's also malfunctioning. And she takes like the bed mattress elevator up to the upper level. It still <laughs> looks like it has a mattress attached to it in this one. It's weird. And then obviously LaForge is upset that she's like getting up in his business and questioning his ability to fix the ship. Uh, yeah, I feel like that happens a fair bit. Like LaForge will be doing something and people are like, oh, like a guest on the Enterprise will be like, oh, you should do it this way. And he's like, can you just let me like, do yeah, my job? A lot job? of guests end up in engineering yeah. trying to tell LaForge what to do with yeah. the ship. Yeah. And then Wesley uh, showed approaching Celia's quarters. The security guy's standing there. It's this dude who's got like these pecs that are trying to like rip through his uniform. He's like, could, he's like, do you need anything? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, why are you here? Yeah. And then also the door is open and Celia's standing there and she's like, oh, can you help me work my replicator? Yeah, like the, <laughs> the easiest piece of machinery on the ship. He walks in and, and the, the security guy outside's like, I, I almost imagine he'd be rolling his eyes, but of it was course. pretty close. It was an internal of eye Of course roll. he was. Uh, also, it was kind of, I was wondering if you were going to say anything about security on the ship again, but like she did invite him in. She did. Like, okay, in you go. It's also, it's Wesley. Right, so. yeah. She, she wants to know what she should order and she says she wants something sweet. So Wesley orders a Thalian chocolate mousse. Uh, it doesn't have any cutlery with it, so she just kind of like sticks her finger into it and eats it that way. 
and calls it a wonderful sensation. And I feel this almost makes me like, well, a lot of this episode makes me really sad for Celia, but I wonder like, has she ever, has she eaten good food or has she just been like isolated living with Anya and eating like pellets? Or does she eat it all? I, I think it's kind of the point they're trying to say. She doesn't say like, it's a good taste. She says it's a oh, good sensation. So she, I don't, she may have not ever eat. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Which also Wesley should have been like, what do you mean? Yeah. Why do you say sensation and not taste? Yeah. He doesn't care. He's just, he's enraptured by her. He, he also mentions that the moose is aged for 400 years. The, the beans, not the moose. <laughs> the beans. Yeah, the beans that they use for the chocolate, I guess, are aged 400 years. And I was like, I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm... on Phallus 7, that's how they make their their moose. And Celia, so then this becomes a sort of recurring uh, refrain for Celia that she wishes she could travel the way he does. And the only planet she knows is Clavdia 3. So Wesley decides to change that. So he takes the moose out of her hands. She has only eaten like one tiny little taste of it. He takes it out of her hands, puts it down and takes her out of her quarters, which again, like I guess the security is like, all right, if you want to leave. That should have flagged something, yeah. (laughs) So then Worf and Anya enter sickbay and Pulaski is there with a patient. Because there is no doctor-patient confidentiality, clearly, in the 24th century, when Anya asks what's wrong with this patient, Pulaski just tells her that it's andronesian encephalitis. Anya gets really upset because that disease is contagious. Pulaski assures her that it won't spread because of the air filtering system. That would be a lot more comforting if we hadn't recently had an episode where Pulaski was like, no, nothing's going to happen. I've checked this person in stasis and oh yeah i hadn't really thought of that basically anya's like no the filtering system isn't good enough you have to kill this person that's pretty intense overreaction kill them you know i i almost felt like picard should have been like you know what if you don't want to be on this ship that's fine we'll take you back to clavdia 3 and you can find another way like we are taking you there we are we are doing what we can to keep you safe. If our security isn't up to your standards, fine. If I'm ever captaining a starship and taking a future leader with her controlling guardian, that's what I'll say. That's the worst backseat driver yes. ever. Yes. She's like upset with with engineering. She's upset with sickbay. She's upset with security. Like, all right, fine. We're not good enough for you. You can go back. We'll, we'll drop you anywhere. We'll drop you off at the nearest planet. Don't make me pull this spaceship over. Basically. basically. That's what I'll do. So anyway, when Pulaski refuses to kill her patient, uh, Anya turns into an, I, th- I thought it was like an evil Wookiee. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, costuming left over from the from the Star Wars prop <laughs> department here that we're using. So Worf is going to like fight Anya yeah. and Pulaski calls security. And of course, the Picard and security are just standing outside just the door, to I guess, because right they just walk yeah. in immediately. I actually kind of like the idea that like Worf is showing Anya around and like security is following like 12 paces behind <laughs> just in case. Just in case. They're about to take out their phasers and fire and Picard like waves his hand and he's like, wait. And it's because like Anya transforms back into a human and tells Picard that like that his powers are infinitesimal compared to hers. And then I made a note here, which you've already said is like, yeah, but you still need a ride. Like, yes. You still, yeah. You still need Fine. Kill us all. <laughs> Make your way to Dalit 4. I feel like she's almost trying to like bait him into a a. I don't know, a, a match of strength or, or wills or something. And she's like, I'm I'm so much more powerful than you are. And he's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. You're going to obey me anyway. He says you're- Yeah, stay in your quarters. And in your present form for the rest of the voyage. 
she's sort of taken back to her quarters with security and Pulaski says that she is an alasomorph. So and she then she kind of says it as like, oh, I've heard of these these beings, these alasomorphs who possess the power to alter their molecular structure into other life forms. So it's not just that they're like, they look like this other life form, like they're they're altering their molecular structure. So that's kind of cool. Worf comments that such a creature would make a good protector. So he's got this <laughs> newfound respect now for, yeah. for Anya. He's like, ah, oh, someone I could spar with. Yeah, yeah. And so Picard <laughs> tells Worf to put a... Security team out, or sorry, security team outside of sick bay, and then when Worf is like, "Okay, but what if she transforms again?" Picard just says, "Improvise," which is not super helpful, but I guess it means he trusts Worf, Worf's judgment, so that's good. That is good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're on the holodeck now. That's where Wesley took Celia. Yeah, Wesley and Celia are on the holodeck, and they're looking at scenery of like different planets because, as Celia said, she doesn't get to travel around very much or at all. Yeah. And they're, they're looking at this place where there's like this resonance in the clouds, like the yeah. nebula around them. And at one point it comes into harmony. And I was like, oh, that's such a neat idea. It is really cool. But then, Ruthie, yeah. Wesley says, it's such a great time alive, to be alive because they're exploring the galaxy. And then he says, we've only charted 19% of the galaxy. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> 19% of the galaxy? So I did some math on Kay. this. Okay. Okay. Let's say by the galaxy, he means the stars of the galaxy. Is that a safe assumption to make, I think? Uh, Could be. I I actually don't know. Yeah, okay. So that means that if they have charted 19% of all the stars in the entire galaxy by this point in the future, I estimated that that they would have to be charting 520,000 stars a day between now and where we are in Star Trek. (laughs) So basically, like a more accurate figure would have been like, one and a half percent. Maybe, maybe a percent, <laughs> but that would probably be about it. The galaxy is enormous. And there's a lot of stars yeah. out there. They might have been around through like, I don't even know if they've been through 20% of even like the diameter of the galaxy at this point. Like the Alpha Quadrant is pretty tiny. They get more of this kind of stuff, I think, accurate in Voyager around like the the shape of the galaxy and size, especially because they're talking about like traversing it and stuff. Right, but yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to have a nerdy astronomy moment there i was like no no no. the galaxy has like 400 billion stars in it fair enough and i mean the (laughs) the point of this scene is more that we see some of like some more of salia's sadness that she she will never see even a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the galaxy she's only ever gonna see dallas four that's right yeah I did the um actually root on this, but you're no, all right. That's not the point not. of the scene. Yeah, it is definitely it can, not the point. It for sure can take you out of it. Um, that makes, yeah. And I think also like we really see here and in the next scene with, with Wesley and Celia, we do see Wesley's just idealism. Like I, I do think it's very sweet that he is like, this is a great time to be alive because there's so much great stuff happening. And then at the same time, Celia is like, well, none of that great stuff applies to me. Yeah, not for me. I don't have the opportunity. Yeah. I don't have like freedom of where I get to go. And yeah, like he's like, well, someday you will see this for yourself. And she like, that's just not the case. Probably for not. Her. Yeah. So then outside of Anya and Celia's quarters, Worf reminds Anya that she will she may not leave the quarters. And Anya kind of tries to I guess she also sees this sort of kindred 
sense of priorities with Worf. And so she she appeals to his sense of security. She says, if I'm confined to, she calls it a cell. If I'm confined to this cell, I cannot protect Celia. And Worf says, well, you have to protect, you have to trust that I will protect her. Anya basically says he can't because his responsibility is to the ship and you can't have, a, tr- a true protector cannot have more than one charge. And then she kind of says, you know, I'm stronger than you. And the only reason I stopped fighting you was that I decided to, not because of you or Picard or anything. But again, like, okay, but like you still need a ride. So, you know, you can fight me if you want, but then you might not get your ride. A true protector cannot have two charges. Yes. And I was like, maybe that's why so many shuttlecraft get stolen. Yeah, because Worf is distracted. Worf's distracted doing other stuff. He's got so many charges. So many charges. So she might be right about that. In the ready room... Picard and Troy are kind of discussing the the dangers of Anya being on the ship. And Troy says that emotionally she is Celia's mother. And Picard sort of comments that mothers can be very dangerous when they're young are in trouble. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I think of, of parents, gen- yeah. anyone who's no dangerous, more dangerous creature. Yes. And anyone who's like looking after or, you know, charged with taking care of a of, of someone. People will go to great lengths to protect their their young and those they are responsible for. Anya calls to Picard in that moment, and she's like, Celia's not in her quarters. And we're like, where could she be? <laughs> and of course, we we go to Ted Ford, and Celia and Wesley are sitting at the table, and Celia's commenting on how wonderful everything is. There are a few places I would rather be in the universe more than just sitting on Ted Ford. That would, I would be there all the time. Yeah. It's such like a lovely place to hang it out. Is. So they're sitting there and, and Guyan and knows what's going on because she's already been asked for relationship advice. So she sees them over there and she's like, I'm going to help out. She comes and drops off some chocolate. Yeah. I think some ice cream there on the table for them. Yeah. And so they're, they're hanging out and um, they're not eating it at the moment. <laughs> they don't eat it. <laughs> they don't eat it. Celia looks upset. He's like, Are, you know, didn't you have a great time? And she's like, yeah, I did. But on Clavdia 3, I could only think about leaving and the isolation. But now she's sad um, that she'll have to face it again. And and she's gotten a taste of just how great that freedom might be. Just on this one trip between these two planets, she's gotten to meet Wesley and, and see what life on a starship might be like and some of the places that she might be able to visit if she could ever travel the galaxy. Yeah. And now she might even have less freedom than she had before because she'll have all these responsibilities and trying to like stop people from fighting because they live on different sides of a planet. Yeah, and and Wesley's kind of surprised that in her role as peacemaker, she is going to be isolated, which I I think is also, that's a reasonable thing to be surprised about. Totally. That's a very strange thing, right? And then he suggests that she stay. And it's almost like he's suggesting that like, like the Enterprise could grant her asylum if she doesn't want to like that that was kind of what I heard because she this is not a life she chose for herself she was taken away from her home and isolated and living with this super controlling person for a very long time now she's going back to a life that she has not chosen that's basically what she has to do and Anya said you're you're the planet's only chance which is Way too much pressure for someone who's like Wesley's 17 or 16. So how old is she? Like around that age? Like that's way too much pressure. That's a good point because I wonder how this episode could have turned out a lot differently. And maybe more interestingly, if Wesley talks her into actually requesting asylum. Yeah. 
And I know exactly what the scene would have looked like. They would have walked to like, Picard's ready room. Yeah. And she would have been like, I'm requesting asylum. And he would have done like the classic Picard facepalm. That's, that, that's what that scene would have been. <laughs> then he, He'd be like, oh my and God. And then it would cut to commercial. And then after that, he would be sort of walking around with his hands behind his back. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it would be. Yeah, we, we could write this. We should write episodes of Star Trek. But instead, she runs out of the ten forward. Yeah, she says she can't stay. She can't stay. And not only is it written as the trope, but Guinan actually literally oh verbalizes God. the trope by saying, if a girl runs out, it doesn't mean she doesn't want you to follow. And I think Wesley was just kind of like, well, she wanted space. I'm going to give it to her because that's clearly what she wants. I know. This kind of trope is something that I have such complicated feelings about because on the one hand, when someone like tells you they want to be alone, you should leave them alone. And also sometimes people don't want to be left alone, but they say they want to be left alone. But I think part of the reason that that happens is that this trope is so prevalent. So it's like they're following a script, but it stops them from saying how they really feel. And anyway, yeah, it's frustrating. It's a bit silly. So Wesley does follow her into the corridor and she tells him to stay away, but then she stops and turns around and says she wants to stay here and have this life, but she can't. Wesley tells her that nothing is impossible. She says that that might be true for him, but his life, and I think this has happened a few times where Wesley is speaking from a place, he is speaking from a place of privilege because yeah, for him, nothing is impossible. He didn't want to follow his mom to be, what was her job? Chief medical at Starfleet Command or something like that. And, and he got to stay on the ship, but she doesn't have that option. He's got this sort of idealistic way of looking at things, but... He's going to start a revolution. That's what's going to happen, <laughs> basically. But I think, like, he just doesn't realize that not everybody in the galaxy has the same opportunities that he has. Yeah, you're right. It's coming from a place of, like, privilege and entitlement, but it's not being wielded in an awful no. way. Like you said, he's trying to be idealistic yes. about it. And, yes. But it is obviously having an impact in the situation, so... Like Anya and Picard and security show up and they find him in the hallway. Yeah. And Anya yells for him to leave Celia alone. And Picard's like, I need you to step away from her. At what point he should have just been like, Guinan told me to follow yeah. her. To the <laughs> Picard would have been like, oh, okay then. <laughs> I, I, oh, it's fine. Okay, I understand. Yeah. And, but you know, he doesn't actually like back away. He just kind of doesn't move. And which I actually kind of appreciate he sort of lets Celia make the move away from him. Yes. Like I kind of feel like he's letting her just make make the choice. Like he's not he's not following her at this point. He's just like, okay, I'm not gonna pursue, but I'm also not gonna abandon you. Which I think is important because she, I think in this moment, and she doesn't really get it, but like she needs someone other than Anya in her life. And he doesn't want to cut that off just because this controlling mother figure is like stay away from my daughter yeah exactly so picard wants to i i think this is a kindness here is that picard wants to debrief the situation with wesley and kind of explain yes. what's going on yeah picard has called wesley to the ready room and is like okay here's here's what's going down anya is an alasomorph alasomorph yeah Wesley's like, oh, okay. So she's like, she's a shapeshifter. He knows the word. Yeah, there's a thing about shapeshifters in Star Trek lore is that every time shapeshifters are brought up, they're usually like, oh, is that like, we didn't know that they exist or yeah. I've only heard about them in myth, but like they come up so often in Star Trek. Yeah, there's one in, there's one in original Trek and there's one in Star Trek six, which is like takes place before this, but was not created yet. So 
like the movie right. yeah. hadn't, so, didn't exist yet, but the but it, it takes place before this. So, but there is one in original Trek. Picard says that he doesn't want to interfere, and I like this point. He's like, normally I wouldn't interfere in the crew's personal relationships, but I want you to stay away from Celia for the ship and crew's safety. And Wesley looks upset, but he's like, okay, like I I understand. Yeah, but but I noticed like. Picard said, I want you to. He didn't order him. Yeah, that that's true. Which I, I kind of liked. That he's like, I this is your choice, but like there is danger involved in being connected with Celia. And not just yeah. danger to yourself. But he, he doesn't order him, which I, I did sort of appreciate. Yes. So then in Anya and Celia's quarters, Celia wants to know why Anya won't let her have a friend. Anya, we have seen her to be very controlling and dangerous and violent. But in this scene, it it really struck me as like, these are the kinds of things that like abusers say, the, the things that Anya says. Like she's saying that it is her duty to protect Celia from danger. And there's always danger from one who is not your kind. He's confusing you. You're forgetting your responsibilities. Like basically saying all these things to keep Celia isolated. Whether this is Anya's intention or not, basically what she's doing is making it so that Celia cannot see any option for herself outside of the role that she is destined, destined to, to fill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it gets really uncomfortable to me. And then Celia says, that whether she sees Wesley is her decision and Anya says it's not. And and again, she gets into this, I raised you, I protected you, I intend to deliver you to Dalit 4, you must do what you are destined to do. And again, that is something that is a super problematic thing to say to a kid of like, I get control over your life because I've taken care of you. It's super unhealthy. So unhealthy. This to me is where I started to really dislike Anya as a character like ugh, not a fan only, only now <laughs> I mean like I already didn't like her but this to me was where I started to be like oh gosh this is gross this yeah. is not okay not before she wanted to like kill a dude who had a cold <laughs> <laughs> yeah I didn't I didn't like her much then either to be fair we've arrived at Dalit 4 Data points out the fact that it has it's basically very similar to Clavity 3 it's like the same atmosphere interference that the and, and everything else so Riker doesn't understand how anyone could exist in an environment that's so hostile to human life bum 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 not all life is human Riker we already know that they're shapeshifters but whatever. yeah but we don't know we don't know what their true form is and it it is different like it is yeah it is very different we're in Wesley's quarters now Wesley's playing it's like it's like future battleship even I made a note about this too yeah. I'm like, oh it looks it looks like battleship. It looks, it's got like chess type pieces but it's got the like yeah battleship and I don't know if the computer like if the game plays itself on the other side but yeah he's by himself I thought they were going to highlight the fact that he's like, he's single by himself because <laughs> the board clearly has two sides to it. He's just kind I'm of standing there alone. with himself. <laughs> all of a sudden, Celia enters. So she snuck out while Anya was asleep. So it's, it turns out it's not just the Enterprise that has poor security. <laughs> Anya's also not the best. Not the best. Uh, we don't know why they have to sleep, but whatever. Yeah. I think in her mind, she's like, this is my last shot yeah. to try to make anything work out of this. So she's like... She's pretty flirty. She's like, yeah, Anya was worried that you would corrupt me. Yes. <laughs> and Wesley's like, yes, with my wild lifestyle, which I thought was pretty funny for him <laughs> to say. Yeah, no, it, it is. I think it is really sweet. It's like a not bad depiction, I think, of sort of young flirting. It's a little awkward, but overall, 
I think kind of nice. Uh, they kiss. It's a little. It's a little smooth. A little smooth. Not not a big one. I think it was Will Wheaton's first on screen kiss. Then right at that moment, the evil Wookiee enters and screams. Doesn't enter. It's just kind of there. Yeah. We don't even hear the door open. We don't even hear the door open, no. Celia tells Wesley to get out, but instead he, I guess, wants to protect her. He calls security. But then Celia turns into an evil Wookiee, and she's brown, and Anya's is gray. When Anya turns into the creature, Wesley, like, stands his ground. Like, he turns around, and he's standing in front of uh, Celia, and he's like, I'm not going to hit her. But then when Celia transforms to a creature, then he's like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not going to stand between both of them. He, like, he jumps off to the side, like, gets in a chair, and he's like, nope, nope. Basically, Celia, like, stares Anya down until she turns back into her humanoid shape. Anya says that Celia should not have disobeyed her, and then she says to Wesley, I warned you to leave Celia alone, but, like, he did. He's like, I was just here playing battle chess. Playing battle chess by myself. And then after the commercial break... We get a sort of captain's log that Anya, because of her shape-shifting abilities, she was able to leave her quarters undetected by security. So now she is contained in there with a force field, which presumably means then Celia is also contained. Like, Celia also can't leave because there's a force field. What form would she have to take to have shape-shifted into something that security didn't see leave the room? I feel like it was like a teeny tiny bug. Like... (laughs) Worf gets to or goes to Celia and Anya and Anya says Celia will like will be with him in just a moment. So he waits outside and Celia asks if Anya's like, are you she's like, are you coming with me? And all of a sudden the tone in Anya like completely switches. Yeah. And she's like, Oh, I'm I'm done my duties now. And 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 Celia's like, Oh, you raised me so well, and like thanks her. And Anya says that she wouldn't have harmed Wesley. She's like, I just wanted to scare him. And Celia's like, I know that. It is, I will say though, like there's very little warmth between them. Like they don't hug goodbye or there's no, she's just like, thank you for raising me well. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, no, I totally agree with this. Like it, it's very problematic, this idea of like, and, and, and Anya says like, you know, I, I know I was hard on you, but I just wanted to prepare you. And Celia's mm-hmm. like- I know, and I'm grateful it's, for that. It was for your own yeah, good. Yeah, which again is not not okay. No, it's not. Celia then asks if she'll ever be able to leave Dalin 4, and Anya kind of echoes what Wesley was saying. She's like, well, anything's possible. But I was like, well, that sentiment never came across at any point before. No. So I don't know why suddenly she's changing her tone yeah, about that. Yeah, she's basically like, this one thing is possible and nothing else. And Anya's going to go to the third moon because that's where she grew up. That was her home. And, and I mean, this is so common, I think, especially in probably the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s. Maybe less common now that you see these like abusive parent figures. But then there is this like, oh, I know that you did all this out of love and it kind of absolves them of any wrongdoing, which is I don't I don't like I don't like the message that sends. I was thinking about this when. Celia leaves with the security team and like Worf enters the quarters to escort Anya. And then they have this moment and Worf and Anya are like, they call each other worthy opponents. And Anya's like, maybe we have more in common than we thought. And I was like, yeah, you're both terrible parents. <laughs> yes. We don't know that yet about Worf, but it'll come. It's get We're getting there, yeah. Uh, we're back at Wesley's quarters now. And they, okay, they have a moment here. It creates an interesting conversation, but I, 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 was, I wasn't really happy about it. So Celia enters to say goodbye and Wesley's upset. Because she's, he's like, well, you tricked me yeah. into thinking that you were a humanoid, you know, but wants to know. She's like, I want, he's like, I want to know what you really are. Now, 
I was probably primed in this thinking because it's it's Pride weekend. It is. And I was thinking I was thinking about this in terms of maybe like an analogy for trans identity. Just talking about identity mm. in general. Also, there was a, there was an episode recently where if uh, Strange New Worlds uh, was watching in episode seven, it's called Serene Squall. There's a trans actor that is in that episode, and and it kind of like there's a conversation around identity in that one as well. It's more about Spock's heritage, about being human, both human and Vulcan, but it's a way to talk about that conversation. Right. I don't think that was probably, that was probably not the intent here. No. It was something that I did think about in terms of like wanting to pin down, well, who are you really? But really what we're saying is, can you please be a more convenient identity that makes more sense to me? You know, it's it's interesting. I didn't think of that parallel when I was watching it, but just kind of hearing what you are saying there, it kind of strikes me that transphobia and homophobia are used as an excuse or as a defense under, you know, the like the sort of gay panic defense when to get really, really serious. But when when uh, trans folks are murdered by their former partners and it's the the it, this isn't the, the real reason it happens, but the excuse is like, well, I was so surprised to realize that this person was trans and it's a, it's a hugely serious problem. And yeah, the idea of like you tricked me and you aren't who you really say you are. And she says she says to Wesley right here, right now, this is who I am. His response is basically that that's not enough. First of all, you brought up a really good point. It's a, it's like being or identifying in a way that I don't identify with or understand that that is somehow subversion. Yeah. And he takes that as being subversive. And she's like, well, that's not that's not at all what it was. She's like, this is this is who I am. I am. I can take on these different forms and they still make sense to me. That's still who I am and who I identify with. I'm at my core. I'm still this person that, you know, Yeah. I, and he responds to it in a really like awful way. I understand why they felt like they needed to do that for the scene, but I actually felt it was kind of out of character for Wesley. I don't think he would have responded this way. I didn't think it fit who Wesley was. For me personally, as someone whose identity specifically around gender has felt very like fluid and dynamic and not, you know, it's it's not always one thing. I I really don't like this idea of like, well, who are you really? That there's this like one true version of you and anything that deviates from that is a trick. Is a trick, manipulative or deceptive in some way. Within trans narratives, one 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 narrative that is quite common is like, well, I was always this gender and now I am able to show myself as that gender. And that is one truth, but it's not the only one. And and people have shifting and changing identities and that's okay. And that to me, that's actually a good thing. And it's not like, well, one of these versions is the real version of me and everything else is a disguise. That's totally fair of Celia that like this humanoid young woman version is a real version of her and the tall Wookiee monster is also a real version and the the version that we see at the end is also a real version and they are all her depending on where she is and what she what she needs. Another thing here that Wesley realizes that's why Anya in the initial communications asked what species they were. Right. So that they could take on human form. Another thing to consider is that that was for their benefit. Yeah. And a lot of people feel the need to create 
a, an identity or a mask that is for the benefit of society, but also for their own safety. Yes. If that mask has to be lifted, instead of people realizing, oh, you created that for your safety because society is openly hostile to you. Instead, it's again interpreted as being, oh, this was the fake you, you were trying to manipulate me and get something from me rather than recognizing that was for their own protection. Yeah, the idea and, and that comes up a lot when people talk about like disclosure, you know, you need to disclose your identity and like, well, why, how about you disclose your identity as like a transphobe and then, well, then I'll decide if I want to spend time with you. Yeah, absolutely. Wesley basically doesn't handle the situation well. And he's like, well, I loved you. And she was like, well, I still love you now. Like, our feelings are the same. She handles this way more maturely <laughs> yeah. than he does. Uh, she apologizes oh, for hurting him, which I don't feel no. like she had to do. And then he's like, you should leave because he's whiny and Just salty. Sulks. And salty. Yeah. yeah, you should leave now. So we go to the transporter room. And Salia thanks Riker on behalf of her world. He thanks or she thanks Riker for, for the escort to the planet. Both wish that the Federation and Dalit 4 will eventually have more formal contact. And then right at the last moment, right as she is walking up onto the transporter pad, Wesley enters the transporter room and he's got a bowl of chocolate mousse. I don't know. Does he apologize? It seems like an apology that he, he says this is a, a taste to remember me by. Yeah, I guess it's an apology. It's not really an apology. What did you think of the the last scene where he says he wants to see her her true... Well, I guess not the last scene yet, but this last bit of this scene where she says she wants him to leave because she can't arrive on the planet in her humanoid form, but that that is how she wants him to remember her. And he, he says, well, I'll remember you that... I'll remember you like this anyway. In some ways, I think to me, there's a piece of you know I want to see your I guess to him it would be like her true form I want to see that I can love that and and also remember you in the form that you want me to remember you as but I I mean there is also based on what what you were saying about the previous scene I think there is also a side of that where it's like people should have control over what pieces of them other people see and if she doesn't want him to see her in the form that she's going to arrive on her planet, that should be her choice. And can I think it's to try to show the beauty of someone's true self when she finally does transform into her like quote unquote true right. form. It's this like kind of ethereal, nice glowy column of light that's floating on the transporter pad. But I was like, what if she had transformed into like an eight foot hairy arachnid? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like, so it's it's like a conveniently easy thing to, like, aesthetically it's pleasing. And I understand there's a metaphorical component to that. My sister referred to it as, like, vaguely lady-shaped because it's got this, like, hourglass figure. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lady-shaped light column. Yeah. I understand it, but they also picked something that's, like, visually sort of easy. To, like, what, what about that would have been a fearful to show right, to anyone right yeah i forgot that part so when he he gives her the one taste of chocolate mousse and then he takes the bowl away from her is like why did he why does he just let her take the bowl down and i was like oh yeah right because they're beaming to like some kind of toxic planet with not the right atmosphere yeah she doesn't even have like a mouth so, yeah that's, so. <laughs> so it's not gonna make any sense so wesley tells o'brien to energize o'brien's here in this one scene hi o'brien yeah we got o'brien yeah our last scene we go to 10 forward 
And Wesley sits alone at a table with a glass of fizzy water, which I only mention because you could hear the the bubbles fizzing through this entire scene. I was so excited about this because (laughs) as you might know, Ruthie, I have an affinity for for bubbly water. I have a soda stream. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. It's one of the few like appliances that I have. (laughs) I love bubbly water. It's my favorite thing ever. And so when I saw Wesley drinking it, I was like, I see you, Wesley Crusher. (laughs) I see you in your fizzy water. Yeah. So Guinan notices him and sits down with him. Doesn't say anything. And Wesley says that he he misses her and he feels empty. Guinan says... That she knows that sensation, but there will come a time when all you will remember is the love. Ah. And I kind of, I do, one thing I like about this scene is like, she's not invalidating him. She's not saying like, you know, oh, you're young. It's not real. She's just like, yeah, that is real. Eventually you won't feel this way, but, but you do now. Wesley says that he will never feel this way about anyone else. And Guinan's like, you're right. And Wesley's surprised. He yeah. thought like she was going to be like, no, no, you'll love someone. But she brings up a good point. She's like, every love feels different. Yeah, like like she says, you will. Th- there will be others, but it won't be like this. Yeah, it's going to be different. Yeah. Which is probably true if you're flying around the universe visiting yeah. people from different planets. Yeah. That'll probably be the case. Wesley gazes thoughtfully out the window. Classic end of episode yeah. scene. And the ship flies away into the galaxy. Because it's busy. It's got to be busy mapping out 19% the rest of the galaxy of the that they galaxy. have to, 90% of the galaxy. That, that's a lot of work. Like, get on that. How many How many did you say it was per day? It's about a half a million stars a day. They, they've got a catalog. From, but starting now, right? Half a million starting now. That's like as of today yeah. time. Yes. So, and they've only been doing it for a while. So it's more of like a, probably like two or three million At stars least, a day. Yeah. So they've got a lot of stars. They got to go chart. Yeah, they're busy. Go chart those stars, Wesley. <laughs> Yeah. Any other thoughts before we close it out? I think we mined more out of this episode than we thought we were going to because a couple days ago, I know you messaged me and you're like, uh, so yeah, I don't know what we're going to talk about with this episode, but there's stuff here. There's stuff here. It's a silly one coming right off of The Measure of a Man. I know. know. They have that like profound episode and then they follow it up with this. Wookiees yelling at each other. I think we have noticed that some of the fluffiest theming episodes are actually what we have the most to talk about and partly it is I think because they are sort of fluffy that they don't necessarily treat the problematic elements with the the sort of sensitivity that maybe we, we that we want so we have to <laughs> say more about yeah. it where it's like the measure of a man like there's, you don't have to say much about that it's right there but with this one no 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 it's there yeah it's there it's intentional yeah, yeah. so but yeah yeah, there we go. That was that was the Dauphin. Oh, do you know where the, the term the Dauphin comes from? Yeah, I only know it from watching The Three Musketeers. Okay, yeah. So in The Three Musketeers, they refer, like, one of uh, the, the king's child is referred to as the Dauphin. That's the only time I've ever heard that term otherwise. France from, I don't know, like the 1300s on and off through to the 1800s. Uh, the, the sort of heir apparent was referred to as le Dauphin, right. which... Which it means the dolphin. Oh. I think it was the, the a symbol for French kings. And, and then I think at one point, sometimes like royals in exile would use the title, the dauphin. That's what it means. So she's the heir apparent. Yeah. That's awesome. There you go. Yeah, that's why it, it makes sense that it, they used it in the Musketeers. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, there we are. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at NathanNunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at FirstLinkPod or send us an email at FirstLinkPod at gmail.com. Tell us about your, your fluid identities or whatever else you want to tell us about this episode. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. And you may have many different types of love in your life, but may they all attract you in such a way that they suck the iron right out of your blood. <laughs>